Good morning. Happy Sabbath. I am excited as we delve into a whole new series of studies. Throughout our conversation this quarter, we're going to be talking about one of the most foundational books in all of the Old Testament. I'm referring, of course, to that poetic jewel that opens the Tanakh, the book of Genesis. We've got a little different flavor today in our broadcast as we're going to be just including you into a discussion on the first two chapters of the book. But before we do that, and I invite my apt and brilliant colleague, who you will meet in a second, uh, let me invite you to pray with me. God, thank you so much for your blessings. Thank you for your love. Thank you for your concern for us. Thank you for your care for us. Thank you for another quarter. Thank you for the opportunity to open scripture. And now we would ask that your spirit descend upon us, that we may converse and that the meditation of our hearts and the words of our mouth may be pleasing to you. Mm -hmm. For we pray these things in your name. Amen. Amen. So as I promised, I've got with me one of my favorite people on our staff. He is our young adult pastor and a good friend of mine. We've been working at this church for around six years and we've grown together. I not only call him a colleague in ministry, I call him a friend and a brother, mm. Pastor Philip Milosavlovich. Phil, how are you today? So good hey, to see good you, to brother. See you. Thank you for your kind words, brother. It's just the truth. You I know you you're loved. I you appreciate you're loved. that, man. Likewise. Likewise. So it's a good discussion. I think Genesis is probably one of the most uh, mysterious of books, but also one of the most exciting. And uh, because it's so narrative-based, it's mm. a very meaningful book for both children and adults. It has so much that adds value to our lives. And so um, it's going to be a really wonderful quarter for us to be looking at this. Yeah, I'm very excited to, to look at it. Uh, because you primarily are working as a young adult pastor mm -hmm. on a campus that is based in, in this and lives in this rhythm of science yeah. and yeah. how do we apply rationale to the realm of faith. And I know that yeah. this is a passion that you have mm -hmm. as you minister mm -hmm. to our university and our graduate students here at Loma Linda. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so I'm wondering... Uh, when when you are in an institution that is so scientifically based and you have a work uh, that probably wasn't intended as science at first, but now is is being read and interpreted to the mm -hmm. through the lens of modern day science. How do you do so that as you're reading stories like the one we're, getting, yeah. we're about to jump in, that those stories remain meaningful mm -hmm. and foundational mm -hmm. to the hearts of our young adult population? Yeah, I mean, I, I would say I'll start with a, a work that was done some years ago. It was called You Lost Me uh, by the Barna Group. And what the author at that time discovered were these six reasons why the church has been left behind mm. by young adults, in particular those who are just eager to really think about their faith in a more intellectual fashion. And one of those was that they feel as though science and faith have been pitted against mm. each other in such a way that there ends up being either you choose science or you choose faith, but you can't have both. And they're like, this rationally doesn't make sense. Therefore, I'm going to stick on the side mm -hmm. of science. So 
So what we've done is what, what the authors have called it is created a doubtless faith mm -hmm. in the church. That's how some uh, more intellectual young adults would look at the church as you're creating a doubtless space. So I can't even come to ask questions mm. here of the text because you have dogmatized it completely. And so it's bubble wrapped, it's cellophane. It's like when you get in the airport and you see some people get their whole suitcase wrapped so it can't be opened even. And I think that has been to our disadvantage as a church community when we don't allow the questions to be asked as heretical as they might come across. Right. But I think the journey of doubt is really important in faith development because it creates a sense of uh, stopping to ask the questions that you need in order to build a firmer foundation. So even though they may still end up where the church yearns they would be, they're going to get there by deconstruction. Mm. And so when we look at the book of Genesis, particularly the first chapter where we're going to get into, I mean, just the first words, in the beginning, God created. Mm -hmm. This is a space that young adults immediately approach and say, but did he? Mm. So that's a tough space to find yourself in, in a conversation with a young adult who's brilliant scientifically. And then you have trained theologians who are looking at the text and like, wait a minute. Now it obviously depends which theologians, right? Um, but there's a lot there to talk to Miguel. And I think we have to have a church that allows for the doubts, allows for the questions in order for us to elevate the conversation mm -hmm. into a space where we might not only endear them to the gospel, but also help them realize faith and science don't need to be at odds with each other. They inform each other. Yeah. Yeah. What no, do you think? Well, that's, I think that's a great point. And I love the fact that you mentioned these first three words. Um, you say, in the beginning, God created. In the original, it's it sounds much more poetic than that because guttural as Hebrew is, it is a poetic language. Mm -hmm. So Bereshit bara Elohim. Elohim. And so the idea inherent in those words is twofold. It's a theological statement. It's a statement of faith, mm -hmm. um, which is what Genesis 1 is intended to be. It's not intended to be a treatise on science, right? They're not looking at subatomic particles and trying to... Um, di to diagnose the rate of expansion in the universe. Um, they're trying to, to make a, a faith statement about creation itself. The other thing that, that I think we've, we've often done is that not only have we attempted to pit science and theology against each other, and this is a long, long problem that the Christian church, has, as I'm sure you're aware, has struggled with, the other problem is that theologians or people of faith have often attempted to use uh, the tools that this, that a scientific approach has for a being that is beyond science. It, God is obviously beyond reality. And so I've, particularly as it, as it pertains to Genesis 1, I love the language itself because it's so poetic. Mm. And when you're reading or a great work of poetry or a wonderfully moving song or you're listening to a symphony, yes, you can, you can deconstruct what you're reading. Uh, if it's a poem, you can deconstruct the meter and the metric structure. If you're listening to a piece of music or a symphony, there's a rhythm and there's a, a rhyme to it. But 
breaking it down, quote unquote, scientifically or deconstructing the text is probably not the best way to enjoy the text mm. or to enjoy the, right, the music right, or, the, right. or the poem. Simply to, to allow the work of art to be art in, mm -hmm, of, in it of mm -hmm. itself and to speak to, to you in it of itself. But I also wonder if we have not been trained as the Jewish people were to find both poetry and literature intermixed and so there is this understanding of chiastic structure mm -hmm. that the people would get then which we don't approach mm -hmm. to the text so i think when we help our church members when we help our friends young people see hey do you see the patterns mm -hmm. because it's beautiful when you recognize the patterns of how the poetry works mm. uh, how the narratives work so I think that's your it's your wheelhouse, you know, being an Old Testament uh, buff that you are. I think that's really beautiful that you bring that out because when people do recognize the artistry in the text, I think it informs how, hey, these were not just easy people who you might think right. don't have any form of education. I mean, they were taking time to craft this well mm. um, and I think that's incredible well think about think about what they're doing you're mentioning chiastic structures and although you don't have a strict chiasm in Genesis when you do have a structure right God spends the first three days of creation creating uh, environments and because the point that Genesis the theological point that Genesis 1 is trying to make is that God is creating order out of chaos and so you have this this idea of god opening environments up in the first three days and then filling those environments with things and so a scientist or or a purely scientific 21st century view of the text would say how is it possible that light predates the sun but that's not a question that the original audience would have asked. The original audience says God is creating an environment and the sun and the moon and the stars are figures that are going to fill that environment mm, that he is forming. Mm, mm. And there is a theological point to that, isn't there, that that really speaks meaningfully, I think, I think to my heart. And, and I'd be dying to hear what you think about this. When, when God says and looks in the beginning at the world, the, the Hebrew uses the word, the term tohu vobohu to, de, to define what the world is like. Mm. And that structure, that sentence, that little phrase there means that the world was utterly chaotic. We use in our English translations, formless and void. Mm -hmm. There is something there, but it's chaotic. Mm. And God is going to create order out of chaos. Mm. And the fact that that the God who created order out of chaos in the in the universe can also create global uh, order out of chaos in my life mm. and can open a space mm. for for experiencing Him in my personal life, I think is a deeply powerful mm. theological point mm. that often gets lost oh, in, yeah. in the way we read the Absolutely. text. Absolutely, I think that's a beautiful way of thinking about it. I I would go back to the fact that God also looked at each of those things when he did fill them and he said, and this was good. Mm. And so I think that the work that God does in our lives, he's very proud of, mm -hmm. you know, he's very happy to intervene in our behalf when we're in the midst of chaos. Some people approach God as, man, I don't want to bother him. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, no, 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 no. That is his wheelhouse. That is where the Lord wants to be in your trouble, in your chaos, mm. to bring order because he wants to bring goodness there. And so each day, light, animals, uh, humanity, every single time he ends with, and it was good. So I think the beauty that we find in that is that the Lord loves to help in chaos, but he also likes to bring beauty into chaos. Mm. So it's not just the, the doing the minimum, it's doing as much as I can to bless my people. Yeah. yeah, yeah, Phil, that's so powerful. I love the fact that you've kind of introduced this other formula that appears throughout the first chapter, which is God creates something and then God actually designates and defines it as good. Mm-hmm. And then in verse 31, he'll finish this whole section by saying, and indeed he saw all that he had created and it, and was, it was good. very good. Yeah. And in Hebrew, as in English, when you repeat the same phrase twice, it's for emphasis. So God is saying, everything we have in this world, particularly you as a human being, is very good indeed. And I find that as as maybe somebody that's read a little too much Augustine and has a little too much Augustinian theology within me, I find that reminder necessary because often... We define ourselves and the and our environments based on the brokenness mm. and on the things that are not good that mm. are surrounding us mm. or the faults that I have. And obviously, as, as pastors that are part of the Christian confession, we believe in brokenness and, and in the mm-hmm. devastating mm-hmm. effects of sin. But I think unlike I think unlike Augustine, Genesis 1 is actually pushing a view that says. No, 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 no. You are not utterly and totally depraved mm. and base. Mm. Yeah. Yes, sin has marred you, but at the core, you are indeed good and very good. Mm. Wow. Okay. <laughs> that can bring out so much because, you know, there are many theologians and pastors, teachers of the text that would look at humanity and say, there is not anything good in us. Mm-hmm. And you're speaking to a very contrary view of that, that no, God actually intended us to be good in our creation. But now I wonder, would that also mean post-fall? Like after sin entered the world, can I still look at myself and say, hey, I am good. And instead of looking at myself and always having like these moments of, shame and Mm -hmm. oh man like i am i am just sinful i am just so bad i'm you know god you don't look Mm -hmm. at me like oh you know how how do you approach a relationship with god in a post-fall world with this pattern of god makes and it's good but what about after sin entered the world brother this is why i love you because you're gonna ask that tough question that as as i'm hearing myself say good and very good i'm thinking about that reality right i'm thinking about paul and i'm thinking about pauline theology in the new testament that is going to say there is not one righteous Mm. no one not even one one among us paul who is going to say the things that i do not want to do that's what i end up doing yeah I think the author of Genesis is not talking about goodness in the same way that we understand goodness, okay, which okay. is based, we understand being good as in terms of our ethics. Uh-huh. I think the author of 
Genesis is talking about goodness in, in a more Hebraic mindset, mm. which has to do with its functionality. So something is, is defined good in the Hebrew mindset if it's doing that which it was created for. Mm. Um, and I think human beings can hold on to this idea that is, it's not unique within, within Christian history to see yourself as the temp, the living, breathing temple of the Holy Spirit, the living, breathing temple of, of the God that indwells um, in you. This idea that if God is in me, if I am created in the image of God, though sin might mar me, there is still, there is still mm. some beauty within mm. me. Mm. Um, I think we Augustinians in the Western Church have law have seen sin as something that completely transforms us. The Eastern tradition actually sees it a little different. Mm. The Eastern tradition doesn't see sin as something that has broken you irreparably. Ah, the okay. Eastern tradition says you are good. God created you in His image, mm. indeed, good mm. and very good. Mm. Sin is a sin is a disease mm. that has distorted that ideal image that God has mm. in Jesus mm. uh, and the Spirit are the antidote to that disease. And mm. so rather than looking at it uh, in terms of who you are, um, I love using this language as we're in Loma Linda and um, you, you and Elena is a resident physician. Um, the Eastern Church would say much like, like Elena did in her, uh, in her courses, sin is an alien pathogen um, <laughs> as opposed to something that is part of who I am. Uh, wow, that's beautiful, man. That's really beautiful the way you think through that and to add that scientific element. That's there, cool. there it is. Now, can I bring us to a little controversy? Absolutely. Can we, can we do that? That's why you're here. <laughs> you're here to bring the controversy. Okay, that's how okay, we grow. Okay. So now you, you might be watching right now and you're thinking, wait, guys, did you skip the creation evolution debate here? I mean, what's, what's going on? Let's go back to the very beginning verse here. And it says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Um, people approach this text with obviously a dichotomy of views um one saying god couldn't have others saying god could have and then others say god did mm -hmm. so if we were to say who all are the believers there are those who say god could have and then god did and so it's the middle ground so you've got the person who calls themselves a theistic evolutionist right so god created through the form and purposes of evolution. And then you've got this other side that said, no, God did all of it. Mm -hmm. How are we to relate to that? Mm. That's a, that, see, I know this is a tough this one. This is the this... controversy and we're gonna get canceled after this show. So thank you for that, brother. I think that's a really good question because you're actually hitting at a, a idea that really matters in in the term in terms of how I see myself right so I'm not an evolutionary biologist I don't really have that much knowledge you're probably your knowledge in biology is probably probably greater than mine so I'll a minor in biology I know be That's, careful what you say I know right this now. is why I'm deferring <laughs> to you um, so there, and, and I think you've really aptly diagnosed the problem. There's so many views on, on this text. There's, for example, 
uh, people that say, yes, there's this thing called theistic evolution where we're trying to be faithful to the science. Um, and so we are going to believe in the scientific record and uh, carbon dating and all this other stuff. Um, we're going to believe in that. And then we're going to try to find a way to work God into the picture. Mm-hmm. Um, there's one of my favorite professors and favorite theologians who resides on this campus that has a pretty interesting and I think really compelling argument as to how that happens. Uh, there's other people that say, no, God is out of the picture completely. Mm. And so the the whole evolutionary process is kind of this dark mm-hmm. side of creation. Mm-hmm. And then there's uh, other people, I'd say, the majority of mainstream mainstream Christianity that says, absolutely not. God, mm. God created us as as mm. you see us today. Yeah. Um I I think the question that that I usually ask myself is what picture of God do I have? And so I reject evolution not because I'm a scientist. I rejected that because I'm a I'm a theologian. And from a theological standpoint, the evolutionary process goes against I think the narrative that scripture is trying to define as mm. it is portraying God. Mm. So think about what evolution says, and you're going to have to correct me I, if I, I get this I wrong. I really agree with you so much on that. Before we go into the next point, just because I think it's all about the the way we approach our image of God, mm-hmm. because Absolutely. it shapes how you look at the text and what you look at God to be like. So if you're going to say the evolutionary model is appropriate for a theologian or a Christian or a believer, that you have to realize will shape how one understands God Absolutely. and his role in humanity. Absolutely. Um, so what would that look like practically? Break that down. If I believe in an evolutionary vision, how would I view God potentially? We can't label everyone, but right. like, how might one view God then? Well, oof, it's it's problematic because Scripture has, particularly the, the the Old Testament, and then I think I think Jesus comes and the life and ministry of Jesus on this earth is is hitting the same point that you have over and over in the Old Testament, and that is God is on the side of the weak. Mm. God is on the side of the poor, the oppressed, oh. those who can't those who can't protect themselves, those who don't have any voice. Time and time again, the Old oh. Testament says God is on the side of of those people. Evolution functions with a radically different the paradigm, right? View, yeah. It says the stronger you are, the more well adapted you are to survive in your environment, the better you'll do. And yeah. so that's one part. It, it, it God says in, in, in the economy of scripture, it's, I, I want to be the voice for the voiceless. Mm. Whereas this other paradigm says, you need to, you're on in constant competition and the strongest will survive ultimately. Yeah. Yeah. And the strongest are expected to and yeah. actually rewarded for preying on the weak. Um, so that's one thing. The other thing that, that I think thoughtful people that 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 engage with the text without trying to tell you where you need to land we need to consider this just just from a waste process evolution is prop at least ethically if, if not and and so i know some of my friends in biology departments are going to say well you can't you can't superimpose ethics onto evolutionary processes because they're natural processes. Mm. But if, if if you believe that God is behind those, those processes, then you need to ask an ethical question of a God that would say, hey, in order for this group of select individuals or species to survive, 
all these others need to die. It seems like a really wasteful process. It mm. seems like a process that mm. prioritizes death mm -hmm. uh, in order to ensure life. Yeah, yeah. And it seems like the, that's problematic. It is because that's not the God that I see speaking through yeah, Scripture. Yeah. So I don't, I don't have a problem, and I'd love to hear your yeah. your views on this because I know you've thought about this question a lot. Mm -hmm. um, I don't have a problem with the idea of evolution from a from a scientific standpoint. I have a problem on it from a theological standpoint mm -hmm, and from mm -hmm. an ethical standpoint. Mm -hmm. And before, and I don't claim claim to be a scientist. I'm a, yeah. I'm a theo I'm a pastor and I'm yeah. a, I'm a follower yeah. of Christ. So. Yeah, yeah. What do you think? Yeah. Oh, I I absolutely love how you brought that out from a theological vision. I think that's right on. I I would add just one thing, and that being, when we say, for instance, certain words that are trigger words for some like the big bang mm -hmm. right i think that really is appropriate for right now to talk about that that is within an evolutionary model a very important moment in time that everything was set in trajectory but i think where we can build bridges with those who adhere to an evolutionary model would be to say that god started mm -hmm. And it spoke, he spoke, and it and it became, and it, and it was that singular infinite moment upon which all life emerged. I think the question we should push against those who, though, adhere to a model of saying ex nihilo, right? Mm -hmm. Something came out of nothing. Scientifically, that makes absolutely no sense by what we understand, by all the scientific processes we have. Always matter comes from matter, right? Right. That something comes from nothing. And saying there was an infinitely dense point by which everything came out of, where else in nature does that occur? Mm. I mean, the only time that ever occurs is at 4th of July when you have those little, <laughs> those little tiny yes. worm things you, you fire up and all of a sudden it's like, whoa, this thing became huge. This thing, but... It doesn't happen in nature. And so to almost have this, what, what do they call it? Um, uh, relative biology or, or um, metaphysical biology where they're just surmising about things mm -hmm. in ways that we don't have any models of currently. I just, I think that's being unfair mm. um, to people who are trying to rationally think through it. And so you're putting all of your stock, all of your faith, into something that you can't even see anywhere else. Mm. Um, now, that same statement could be said of the person of faith. Where do you see something mm. appearing, you know, because God said it was, you know. I would just add that both, both realms require a leap of faith mm. to some degree. Both do, and we have to be honest about yeah. that. I am very biased. I'm a pastor. I'm an Adventist pastor. I am a believer. I... Also, look at the text and I say, God started things. Mm -hmm. And I have to trust that. But I'm also going to honor the science as much as I can. Right. And I'm going to be respectful to it as much as I can. But I cannot superimpose the science on my theology. Mm. Whereas some would say, no, that's that's good. That's really good. I, I just cannot approach it with that way because the text also tells me who God is right. and what he did to begin life. Right. And so I have to say, while this is not a book of science, it informs mm -hmm. how God set the principles of the 
way Earth came to an existence, right. how the universe came to work. Um, and so when we see incongruencies in the science, why does one planet spin the opposite direction while the other spin in one direction? This doesn't make sense <laughs> scientifically. Well, you have to leave room for there to have been a creator who stepped in with his paintbrush mm. and did his own artistry here. Um, the universe is expanding and God's underst our understanding of God's handiwork will ever expand. Mm -hmm. But if you're going to superimpose the science on theology as a believer, I think that's a scary place to live in. I think it is, and here's why. Um, and again, uh, I know people that are that are faithful followers of Christ and and have found ways to mold that. And yeah. again, that's 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 an individual journey, and yeah. we're all trying to figure this out. Um, I do think that you mentioned something that's really that's really important to remember in this whole creation uh, conversation, and that is both worldviews, both narratives, because that's ultimately what these are. These are narratives uh, that try to get behind. Uh, the curtain, and we don't really have language or experience to inform uh, what it, what exists behind that curtain. Um, and so, I think what you said, in terms of it requiring uh, a fair amount of faith to believe in a creator, at, in, in a, obviously it requires the same amount of faith to believe that. Uh, an explosion happened 16 billion years ago, and here we are. So I, I, I try to be a bit more utilitarian in my approach, and so I wanna, I wanna highlight just a few things that you said. The first one is, science does have a problem, um, and I'm not a scientist, but uh, I, I try to think logically and systematically about these things. So science functions on this idea of entropy. Uh, entropy is huge for, for our mm -hmm, conversations mm -hmm, on mm -hmm, science, mm -hmm, which means mm -hmm. everything tends to disorder. Mm -hmm. um, that, that has to be, uh, that belief has to be suspended for, uh, the, big, for the Big Bang and, and the evolutionary theory to work. But even beyond that, um, there's, there's this idea that I think we need to be honest with. And Michael Martin, who's a brilliant uh, scientist and uh, an atheist and the proponent of uh, I, one of the, I think, a philosopher, one of the most uh, articulate proponents of this view, even he recognizes that the possibility of all of the necessary circumstances to be present for there to be life on planet Earth is infinitesimal. Yeah. He, he yeah. and if you talk to anyone who believes in uh, in in the Big Bang or in, in in the evolutionary theory, they will grant you at least that mm -hmm, that mm -hmm, mm -hmm, the mm -hmm. circumstances around that had to be perfect. And so there's this idea now going around of multiverses mm -hmm. and uh, an infinite amount of universes and realities. Mm -hmm. And without getting into too much uh, debate on that, that's kind of how. Uh, some friends in in that camp attempt to solve the problem because the probabilities are so low. Yeah, I think the breakdown of of uh, evolutionary um, 
ideology that I did, you know, really spend a lot of time grappling with back in college started to break down when I started to read Michael Behe's book, mm-hmm. uh, Darwin's Black Box. Mm-hmm. If you haven't read it, uh, you've got to pick up a copy. It's a tough read, but there are some really good uh, summaries of it. And this one principle that I know some um, evolutionary biologists have tried to break down, but it, it's a good one. Now I want to share it with you. You probably know it, but it's the idea of irreducible complexity. Mm-hmm. And they looked at just the basic flagellum, this this little, I don't even know if I'm using all the right terminology, but this just small motor of a cell, and not even really a full cell, um, has such irreducibly complex components in it. I think there were like 19 different components. And if you were to pull out any one of them, it would cease to exist. Mm. It wouldn't evolve into something new because it, lacked that one thing. Mm -hmm. So without each component being present, you cannot create a new life Mm -hmm. form. So the notion of survival of the fittest breaks down immediately. Mm -hmm. So he found that when he applied this to all different types of life forms, everything seems to break Mm -hmm. down. Um, Now he did this from a completely devoid thing of theology and faith and religion. He was just looking at the science there. Now he's gone on to explain other things. He comes from a, I believe, a Catholic kind of tradition. Um, but for me, that was so foundational to realize, wait a second, there's a chink in the armor mm, here. Yes, I need to think through this really thoughtfully uh, because that's the other part. I feel like I've been um, privy to just having a little bit of a background in science. You can't just assume every argument is equal with another. And you can't just assume because someone says they're a DR in front of their name that Mm. they've got it all worked out. So given enough time, as you're exposed to theoretical science and theological kind of debate, you will find some answers that will challenge you, whether you're a person of faith or a staunch believer of the scientific Mm -hmm. method as being your faith. Um, So I would just say, For those of you who are out there and wondering, well, what am I to believe now though, pastor? Is there there science that can kind of speak to these issues? Absolutely. But just ensure that when you're reading, you're reading broadly, but as a believer, you're allowing the theology of scripture to take primacy Mm -hmm. and inform your understanding of science. Because science always changes. It's based on hypothesis. Hypotheses can change. Theorems, you know, are are kind of solid, but even there is still some wiggle room. So I think we have to be careful when we put everything in the camp of science. Yeah, no, and and we've seen that, right? Uh, We went from Copernicus to Newton. We went from uh, Copernicus's understanding of how the universe worked to Newtonian physics and then to Einstein's relativity. And so those paradigms are different. The question that still hasn't gotten answered is, how, why is it that it seems like this world, and this is what, what a lot of our friends in the scientific community, particularly in physics, uh, call the anthropic principle, right? Why does it look like this world is set for us to live and survive and not only survive, but thrive in it? I think for me, what, what really began to shift the way I looked at myself is I, 
and you might have guessed it by now if you're watching and you've heard, you've heard us for a while here, I'm not, science isn't the place that I'm most comfortable with. What I wanted to do, kind of as you're reading uh, Darwin's Black Box, is I wanted to say, well, is there a way for me to paint my faith in a creator as rational? Mm. Can I defend the belief in a creator rationally. And strangely enough, there's people throughout time that have done this. So uh, William Paley, who's a, a British uh, philosopher and, and theologian, came up with this idea of complexity, right? The, and he calls it the watchmaker argument, mm. uh, that complexity, in, complexity is always, or at least in his experience, infers, infers design. Mm. And so that was his argument. Mm. His argument was, if you look at a clock and you open it and you see all the gears, uh, you're going to believe that there is a watchmaker that is responsible for that complexity. Mm. Another one, all the way back in the Middle, e in the Middle Ages, was Thomas Aquinas. Aquinas actually uh, comes up with uh, an argument from primacy. And so he says, wait a second. If everything we have has a cause, then we need to believe in, in order for there not to be an infinite cycle that we have to have a prime cause. And mm -hmm. he called it the unmoved mover, unmoved something mover, that yeah. is not contingent on anything else. Mm -hmm. And so that argument from, from causality um, actually was, was, I think, is... is continues to be very, very appealing. Uh, Anselm of Canterbury in his great book, Proslogion, has a philosophical argument for the existence of God that comes from God's ontology. Mm. So the language that we use about, about God and even our definitions about God uh, kind of infer the existence of a God. And um, so there are ways in, mm. in which you can mm. defend your faith rationally. Mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm. We don't have to abdicate, and I think that's what you're trying to say, Phil. We don't have to abdicate rationality for faith. Mm -hmm. And we don't have to, uh, to assume that scientific uh, theories are devoid mm. of bias. We all right. have our biases. Right. We all have these narratives right. that we just that we that we prefer. And I think for us, uh, we can unabashedly say yes. Our arguments for the existence of God and for creation are not irrational. Mm. They're they're actually mm. rational. Yeah. But they are through the lens yeah. of a bias that we have, and yeah. we have this bias sure. because we're believers in mm -hmm. God. And, and I think that's really important to recognize that each one of us has a bias. Mm -hmm. And so we need to be honest with it. I would just encourage people to recognize, don't let your bias cause you to twist things in such a way to really try and make mm. it work. I mean, if you think of... Um, Francis Crick and James Watson, mm -hmm. who discovered the DNA helix. You know, I mean, <laughs> this I just found so interesting when I was in the in my biology class. Francis Crick went so far to say there could not be an intelligent designer. Creation began as aliens came to the planet and populated it. And I'm just like, why? Wow. Why? Why go to that level mm -hmm. that you would just reject the possibility of design because you really don't like the idea of God, you know? And so that's the only thing I would just tell people, hey, be careful that you don't allow your biases to push you so far that you become then moving from rationality to irrational mm. in some way. I mean, it's like, wow, you took one fable God created and then you invent another fable that right. an alien created. 
And I think I think for us the idea then becomes what narrative do we do we find more comforting? Again, I want to look at it from a re really utilitarian perspective. So um, after World War II, uh, and you know this, uh, particularly second half of of the twentieth century. All the promises that we had made about our ability as human beings to create a better world kind of evaporated. Mm. Um, and they evaporated in the light of how much damage and carnage the 20th century mm -hmm. uh, witnessed. And so there was this shift. Um, and you had thinkers that began to use uh, psychology and philosophy and sociology, anthropology to actually ask questions about, about this idea of God. And so uh, you have people like Freud and Nietzsche and Marx, and, and all of them are asking this question and they're saying God is dead. Um, and that's 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 a good thing because now we can be responsible for our own actions. Freud Freud goes as far as to say that what this belief in God is is a narrative of infantile regression, and so we we just want somebody to take care of us. And while I don't agree with either Freud or Nietzsche and their ultimate conclusions, I do agree with this idea that it is infantile. We do want something to take someone to take care of us. And that narrative for me at least is comforting. Mm. And so just from a from a utility standpoint, I choose and maybe this shows my ignorance or my blissful unawareness, but I choose to believe that I am the conscious result of a creator who says, I want to make this unique being and mm. then endow him and define him as very good mm. rather than um, just an accident mm. of history. And so just from that point, the narrative that I choose myself, and again, it might be short-sighted and it might be biased and it might be, yeah, it might be irrational if, if, if you choose to see it that way, but it's, it helps life be better. It, mm. it gives meaning and hope. Mm. And Nietzsche himself mm. says that when we have hope, when we have a why, mm. we can withstand whatever how mm. life presents. Mm. And so I think for me at least that from a strict point of, of utility, um, I, I choose to believe that I am indeed created by God and good and very good. Mm. Beautiful, beautiful. Now, someone might be saying, Pastor Miguel, um, what do I do? I'm a young adult, I've been trained or I'm an older, you know, scientist. I've been trained in this world. All that sounds really nice and pretty, but it just doesn't work to believe in God. Mm -hmm. Is there a place for me in your faith community? Yeah, I think I think there are. I think I think there is a place, and I I think you said it beautifully. Um, there is a place at our table for diversity. There mm. is a place for questions. There is a place for conversations. There is a place for opposing views. Yeah, yeah. Um, and there is a place for opposing views because a lot of people that look at the text and at this book, this book that you and I have dedicated our lives to, will say, well, this is patriarchal. It's oppressive. It's abusive. It's genocidal. We know all the problems with mm -hmm. scripture. We've heard them before. Mm -hmm. What I find phenomenal about this book is, yes, there are all those things in there, but there's also this, these ideas that are very unique. 
think about think about Genesis 2 and think about the cultural milieu in which it was written. And then think about what, what the author is saying. When the author says that God recognized that it was not good. By the way, the first time that that phrase is used, up to this point, it mm -hmm. is all good. Mm -hmm. And then Genesis 2 it enters yeah. the arena and yeah. it says, it is not good mm. for Adam to be alone. Mm. I will make him a suitable companion. Mm. And Eve is created. And Eve is created from the side of Adam. And then Adam sees Eve. And for the first time, and probably the only time in human history, the man is left speechless. Mm. And so there is this beautiful pre-fall vision of equity among genders in this society that is admittedly patriarchal and mm. that, that is problematic. There's mm. there's this idea in Genesis 1.26, male and female, he created them, that both are created in the image mm. of God. And mm. so I think it's those gems in scripture mm. that have allowed every meaningful transformation to happen in Western culture mm -hmm. that is pushing for the betterment of culture to mm. be at, spearheaded mm. by mm. people of faith. It is those yeah. jewels. Yeah. Now, and the way you look at this is so different than one who approaches the text with a lot of criticism. You looked at those critiques and you just saw it from a different vantage point. I think that's a really important thing to recognize when we approach Genesis or any other text in scripture, you can head on hit the controversy, but land at a beautiful position, mm -hmm. recognizing let's, let's acknowledge what we see here, but let's see what might also mm. be here too. When we look at the text in Genesis 1, I just wanted to bring this out. I think it's important to recognize the name that's used for God, mm -hmm. Elohim. It's all throughout chapter 1. Right. And then in chapter 2, it's Yahweh. Mm -hmm. And now, why would there be a difference in the name of who God is in chapter 1 and chapter 2? One reason I, I believe when I look at the text, I say chapter 1 was the formulaic process. Mm -hmm. Day one, two, three, four. And so it was just a telling, mm -hmm. you know, the God who does and brings beauty into the world. But then chapter two is this love story of God now with his people. Mm -hmm. Elohim brings out this relational kind of mm -hmm. sense of who God is with his people. Um, I mean, Yahweh, I should say, in right. chapter 2. And it is such a sacred word that, you know, Jewish tradition doesn't even pronounce mm -hmm. the words because it is, it is that sacred. Um, so when we look at Genesis and Genesis 1 and 2, I mean, there's so much that comes yeah. out here. Some people might be wondering, Pastor Miguel, I want to know more. How do I learn? I wonder if, if I can just share this one great resource. Sure. So. Um, this quarter, we're studying the book of Genesis, and it was, you know, crafted by one of my professors from seminary, Jacques Ducan. And he has a commentary on the book of Genesis that just came out that's going to be part of an entire volume that I'm really excited about. Uh, the International Bible Commentary that is uh, written and done from an Adventist uh, perspective. And so, Dr. Dukan did this. You can pick it up on Amazon or the Adventist bookstore online. So another great place and another great resource for people. That's wonderful. So I, I want to just really emphasize on one thing that you said, and that really, I think, brings it together for me. Um, 
it's really dangerous when we try to just de do theology and, and apply a lot of the same principles that we apply to any other scientific enterprise. Um, again, in this uh, late 19th century, early 20th century, it was all about giving respectability to the guild. And so we started uh, the process of literary criticism, this idea that we could get behind the text. And I think it, I think it was very useful in, in some aspects. Uh, so when you ask that question between Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, uh, and, and you're asking anyone that, that, is, uh, that is in the guild, the primary uh, response that they get is this idea of the documentary hypothesis. Now, we're not going to get into that because that doesn't transform people's hearts. <laughs> but what transforms people's hearts is what you just said. So think about this, this idea. Elohim is a king. And Genesis 1 is created and crafted in the Hebrew as a hymn to the creator. And mm. it's, it, it uses the same rhythm that you would uh, an enthronement hymn in Semitic literature. Genesis 2 uses, as you said, the tetragrammaton or uh, Yahweh or Adonai for, for those of us who, who aren't comfortable using that, that the holy name. But it's this God that gets his hands dirty. It's a craftsman. Who, inter who interjects with creation. Um, and so it's it's both these, these angles, both these mm. ideas, both mm. these truths about God, because God wants to be whatever you, want, you need him to be. When you need a king that will bring order out of chaos, that's what God mm. will be. Mm. When you need a God that says, hey, let me get my hands dirty mm. and sit mm. in the garden with you. Preach, Pastor Miguel. That's what God will be. Well, and awesome. so I think that's that's what really transforms yes. the hearts. The yes. diversity in view isn't to prioritize, as you've been mentioning, mentioning yeah. one view over the other. Yeah. The diversity in views is to simply say, God will be whatever mm. you need them to mm. be. So, Phil, I am so happy that we had this conversation. I want to point back to this book because my my Pastor Phil here can't just put out a book and then do nothing with it. So here's, here's what I want to do with you guys. For the first 10 people that send us a like and a comment on the YouTube video, or um, for the first 10 of you that comment or just like our YouTube video, we are going to get you one of these copies if you're interested. So all you have to do is hit like on that button or comment, and we will send you one of these. Please, um, we'll contact you. Give us our, when you like or when you comment, make sure you send us uh, your address, and we will make sure from us to you because we want you to be encouraged by the book. That's amazing. We want you to get one of these copies. So we will provide a copy for the first 10 likes or comments. Phil, we've had a wonderful conversation. Yes. Alas, our time is over, yeah. so won't you pray us out? Yeah, absolutely. Let's do it. Let's do it. Amazing God, you know the burdens that we all carry. You know the individual burden our viewer is carrying right now. And Father, I so I pray that the chaos that might be in their life this morning, this afternoon, or evening when they watch, God, would you bring your special touch of order into their lives. May they know you're with them, you see them, and you're the God who will also be in the midst of their pain, crafting and remaking that which is broken. Lord, I also pray that you would help us begin the work of comprehending and studying more and more. Father, these hard and complex ideas but Jesus, I also pray today that you would just bring your special Sabbath blessing over your people.
May they just rest in you. May they sense and know that they are with a God who created them. There on the seventh day, he said, they'll stop, be with me. And so, Father, thank you that we have this Sabbath, that we can pause in the midst of creation and say, Lord, you did it all. And thank you for that. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, have a happy Sabbath. And remember, you are good and very good.